0: This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, where professional readers give voice to articles from Canada's best general interest magazine. I'm your host, Roger Ashby. A review of three novels about confusion, distrust, and fear mirror our pandemic moment. Paul Barry reads The Year of Witchlit, Weird Women Dominated New Stories of Suspicion and Rupture by Alex Hawley. Alex Hawley is the author of The Old Familiar, All True, Not a Lie in It, and My Name is a Knife. Her new novel is forthcoming. She lives in British Columbia.
1: This is a review titled The Year of Witch Lit. Weird Women Dominated New Stories of Suspicion and Rupture by Alex Hawley. For a couple of years, around 2000, I lived in Mistley, a pretty village just outside Manningtree, one of England's smallest towns. Famous for its swans and its pair of elegant 18th-century towers, Mistley sits on the Stour Estuary, about an hour's train ride east of London. My British partner and I lived in a semi-detached place in a row of houses at the top of a hill which petered out into fields. Our next-door neighbor operated a home hair salon, and one weekend she painted her half of the house ivory, so our side looked like a dirty face. I often thought my own face might be dirty, given how I seemed to perplex people in the streets or the shop. I knew I was a complete outsider with my Canadian accent and my jogging. Someone once opened his door to ask what I was running for, and it took me months to learn that, y'all right, was a greeting, not a question. The swans were ruthless and terrifying, chasing me whenever I passed with a bag of groceries. When I ran near Mistly Heath, a wolfhound sometimes appeared out of the woods to chase me, too, nipping at my legs. I walked down the hill to Manningtree most mornings and often saw a man in a gray overcoat following me. A low-level paranoia grew in me. Was I literally being chased out? I found out later that Matthew Hopkins the self-styled witchfinder general of the 1640s, was buried somewhere behind our house. His grave and most of the adjacent church were lost to trees and grass. He'd conducted interrogations at a nearby inn, sending some 100 people to be hanged for allegedly consorting with the devil. Once I knew that, I wondered whether the presence of his bones might have had some effect on me. I could never get warm in the house although it was well-heated and not old for England. I wondered sometimes if it was mildly haunted. I had a hard time sleeping. Was I the problem, or was my suspicion the problem? I've been reminded of my life in Mistley during the pandemic. The slow-rising fear, the mistrust of others, the general bafflement. Even after lockdowns began to end last year, I spent most of my time holed up inside my home in British Columbia. I insulated myself with old BBC detective shows, and my reading gravitated toward the criminal, too. True crime felt too hard to take, so I stuck to fiction, mainly mysteries that felt more solvable than the present. Checking out new books lists in hopes of anything to take me away, I noticed a thread of literary novels about witches. Witch hunts are detective stories of a kind, as readers parse notions of reality and supposition which was probably what grabbed me first. But these books are very different. Not the witches of fantasy or of children's lit. The characters of three 2021 novels are victims of historical persecutions in England, America, and Germany. The stories evoke a deep confusion about what's happening and whether there's any way to fix it, echoing so many questions of our current moment. A.K. Blakemore's The Manning Tree Witches depicts Matthew Hopkins himself, but it's much more intensely focused on some of the women he pursued. A passionately expressive novel with a bold energy, the book is mainly in the voice of one of the teenage girls accused of witchcraft. Rebecca West lives with her odd, formidable mother in Manningtree, while they try to make ends meet with sewing and laundry. The girl is smart-mouthed, adolescent and alive, her observations of neighbors and nature full of cockeyed detail. She wouldn't mind seeing an imp streaking red across the damp lawn. She has a crush on the clerk who tutors her, and she is too smart for her own good in a small town where the atmosphere is increasingly claustrophobic, with the English Civil War boiling in the background. Matthew, a thin man, perpetually dressed all in black, arrives to collect information on suspect happenings. A sickened child, a possible case of possession. Rebecca, who he thinks has a weird look to her, is among those rounded up for imprisonment and trial. These novels are all about rupture and its effects. In The Manningtree Witches, the war is a major split, but gender is another obvious divide. The majority of Matthew's victims are women, and Rebecca notes wryly, the men will not save you. At heart, though, the books are about storytelling itself. Blake Blakemore slyly shows Matthew inventing reasons behind random events and connecting dots to cohere his grand story of evil versus good. He was, after all, a writer too, author of The Discovery of Witches, a kind of how-to guide to hunting them down. But Matthew is a deliberately flattened character, although he often conjures dreamscapes about witch sex. The sections from his perspective are dialed far down compared with those from Rebecca's. Observing him, Rebecca says, I can find nothing there. The book also makes witches into a kind of nothing, just a narrative device. As Rebecca's mother half laughs, which is just their nasty word for anyone who makes things happen, who moves the story along. This story moves along with some shifts and gaps between scenes, and includes brief excerpts from real-world trial documents. The structure emphasizes the way we all try to fill in holes however we can. Black rabbits wouldn't appear around town if there weren't witches about. Cases of the novel coronavirus, some claimed, would spike because of God's punishment. The subtitle to Matthew Hopkins' own book is In Answer to Several Queries. He's just providing the facts behind the question of why the world suffers. Hopkins' guide had a large New England fandom, and Chris Bojalian's Hour of the Witch takes place in this infamous hunting ground in the mid-1600s. Mary Deerfield has emigrated with her well-off British merchant parents to a purer life in Boston. In this society, talk of the devil is as expected as chat about the weather. Mary marries an older man, Thomas, who proves domineering and abusive, frequently complaining that her brain is made of cheese and that she fails to produce children. Thomas badly injures Mary when he impales her hand with a fork the devil's tines, and she decides to sue for divorce. Her attempts at freedom and at healing herself and others lead only to her being tried for witchcraft. Bojalian builds another claustrophobic world, and as in the Manningtree witches, the ridiculousness of the charges creates a disquieting tone. Again there's a major split in the community, the elect versus the damned, and another between men and women. One of Mary's crimes is that she speaks with the surety of a man. Bojalian is excellent at suspense. He also wrote A Flight Attendant. And at lovingly detailed scene setting. Hour of the Witch is more straightforwardly told than The Manning Tree Witches, and although its characters are fictional, their quoted testimony is very convincing. But this novel's true strength is in its portrayal of an abused person's mind. Mary is not only cut off from others, but self-divided too, always wondering if she is good or bad, trying to understand why her husband harms her. The exhaustion of her self-monitoring is painfully realistic. She's confused over her ability to give herself private sexual pleasure and ashamed that she likes looking at handsome young men. Hour of the Witch also raises perceptive questions about how fixed identity really is. Fretting over whether she reads too much, as Thomas believes, Mary wonders what it says about her soul that a few bits of fashionable silk or cotton cloth and some interesting books could make her content. Even more, the book asks whether we own our identities and whether we can know ourselves the way many people have questioned who they are in the upheavals of the last two years. David L. V. Bauer, a London virologist who gave a TV news interview on research behind the Pfizer vaccine only to watch anti-vaxxers edit, misquote, and circulate it widely online, says he never imagined that my own work could actually be part of an anti-vaccine misinformation arsenal or that he would be the involuntary star of conspiracy videos that make him out to be either some sort of supervillain or the unlikely hero of the anti-vax world. Mary also speculates whether she might unwittingly be a supervillain herself. Did a woman who was possessed not know it until it was too late? Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch by Rivka Galchin, takes the question further. A spiky heroine, Katharina Kepler, mother of scientist Johannes Kepler, is another purported historical witch. As in the other books, there's turmoil and division, here featuring war and crop failure and Lutherans versus Catholics. In early 17th-century Germany, Katharina, a widowed grandmother, irritates many neighbors with her straight talk, her manly behavior, her herbal cures, and her love of her cow. One townsperson, Ursula Reinhold, sets off an avalanche of charges by accusing Katharina of poisoning her with a drink. Others pile on. She caused them bodily harm by looking at them, or killed their livestock with a slap, or asked the gravedigger to dig up her father's skull to make a drinking goblet of it cast in silver, a known witchy tool. Galchen's insightful and dramatic novel is the most absurdist of the three, with the charges against Katharina clearly nonsensical, although based in fact. Its form is also purposely askew, with untitled chapters shifting between Katharina's voice and her neighbor Simon's interspersed with courtroom examinations of her neighbor's accusations. As one witness argues, we all know she's a witch, we've always known, The matter of how we came to know is simple. We already knew. How can anyone argue with what everyone knows? Somewhat beaten down, Katharina sees a doctor to inquire what she really is. He tells her she's not likely a witch. And witches are real, the doctor says. Sure they are. But what can they do, really? Not much, is what I have observed. Yet Katharina's not off the hook. Like the other novel's characters, she suffers physical examinations to check for what are often called witch marks. Her family's fortunes are ruined in attempts to defend her, and she's later informed that her real punishment will be that the story of the evil she had done would live long and survive as a tale to frighten children until the end of days. However, One of the book's most tragicomic twists comes when Simon tries to tell an English bookseller about Katharina, and the man replies, People don't like an old lady story, you know. I wouldn't lead with that. What do people want from a story? To make sense. To know what happens. To bridge gaps. Historians have shown that witch hunts weren't panicked insanity. They were usually attempts to understand real problems. Why was life hard? Why didn't the rain stop? Why did children die? How could a church pull in more followers? The witch, as answer, fit, the way witches do in the stories told about them for centuries. They make handy antagonists, powerful, but satisfyingly defeated. Hansel and Gretel has its infamous witch tempting children into her candy house so she can cook them. She vanishes from the tale with surprising quickness, though, once Gretel shoves her into the oven and the children make their way home to the parents who forced them out in the first place. As Blakemore's character shrugs, a witch's job is to fill a slot, to move the story along. In Mistley, I don't think anyone saw me as some sort of jogging Canadian witch. Most of the people there seemed kind, if always reserved. Not the usual monsters of the town in Galchen's novel, or the Boston gossips in Bajalians, or the flat them of Blakemore's Manning Tree. I wonder still if I made a stranger of myself. I remember realizing some days that my voice was whispery from not having talked to anyone until my partner got home at night. All the major characters of the three novels keep themselves apart to some degree, whether from a fear of others seeing them as too different, or because they can't tolerate others' difference from them. Political and social splits now feel as jagged as they often were during the historical period of these books. And witchcraft hovers on the edges of anti-vaccine thought. Misinformation whispers that the COVID-19 shots do all the things witches were accused of doing. They are poisons. They can track your every move. They can make you infertile they'll pull you into Satan's orbit. A recent online blow-up insisted the Moderna vaccine contains the chemical luciferin. It doesn't. And at any rate, luciferin is just an organic, light-creating molecule. It's the mechanism behind a firefly's glow. We all want some light shed on why the virus has hit, what is to blame, and when we'll get to the end. Without clear answers... Stories get stitched together out of old pieces. That was a review titled The Year of Witchlet. Weird Women Dominated New Stories of Suspicion and Rupture by Alex Hawley.
0: You've been listening to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, produced by Don Dickinson. Audio engineering by Jacob Shymansky and Bill Shackleton. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank, and I'm your host, Roger Ashby. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating and review, and subscribe for more. I'm Arthur Shepard
1: of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air every month my co-host alex hadjar and i spill the tea on what it's really like to live with ms watch tripping on air
0: on youtube or download wherever you get your pods